This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, our final 30 of the day. There uh, is uh, no question that these are challenging times in society and the workplace, particularly as we face so many questions of a racial and gender biased nature in the news. While many of us believe uh, and consider ourselves to be supportive of equality, diversity, and inclusion, we might not be really examining our own biases. A new book titled The Person You Mean to Be addresses some of these issues and offers ideas as how to be, by becoming goodish, we may actually become better people. Uh, the author of that book is uh, Dolly Chug, who is a professor at NYU Stern School of Business, and she joins us on the phone to discuss her book. And also in studio with us is uh, Catherine Milkman, who's a chair for Excellence in Teaching and also Associate Professor of Operations, Information, and Decisions here at the Wharton School, who also holds an appointment from Penn's Perelman School of Medicine. Dolly, great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Katie, great seeing you. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. So uh, take us into into this book and, and the need that you saw to, to write this book, Dolly. Yeah, thank you. I mean, Dan, I feel like you just summed it up, these challenging times. And I'm, I'm a scholar who studies these issues, but I'm also a person living in the world, struggling through them, as, just like everyone else is. And, you know, I would... I, I teach and I would mix up two students of the same race for each other publicly, and they don't look anything alike. I would, um, you know, assign a reading and then have a female student email me and say that she found the reading sexist, and that really, really kind of sent me into a big defensive zone of how could I have assigned a sexist reading, and then I reread it, and I'm like, oh, actually, you know, I may have had a blind spot. So my own, um, my own ups and downs in navigating these issues was coming up against my knowledge that we have research out there that can help us navigate. And so my decision to write this book really came from a place of let's take the research that I and others are doing that we know is helpful take it out of the dusty academic journals and bring it into the world where the rest of us are living in these challenging times and see see how we can bring it to life with science as well as some great interviews that are throughout the book as well. Dolly, can you talk a little bit about exactly what the book is about? Yeah. Um, Katie, thank you for, for giving me a chance to overview. it. The, I call it the Smart Semi-Bold Person's Guide for Diversity and Inclusion. It's an approach to thinking about diversity and inclusion that really begins with thinking about yourself and ways in which you may inadvertently be holding some unconscious bias or benefiting from systemic bias. So I do everything from defining those words and offering a little bit of research, telling stories about people who have been thinking about this and how they've struggled with it, and then offering some concrete tips about how to actually navigate those issues. I was really taken with your discussion of unconscious bias in the book. Could you talk a little bit about what it is and why you think it matters? Yeah. The, um, so unconscious bias, sometimes referred to as implicit bias, has been in our national discussion a lot the last year or two. Uh, what, I, what, what I'm trying to offer in what, the way we think about unconscious bias is not a magic bullet solution because as social scientists we have not come up with that yet. 
but an approach to thinking about ourselves as works in progress, people who are growing and learning and beginning to see things that may not have been visible to us before. And so with unconscious bias, one of the things um, we're trying to do is just simply audit or notice, be better noticers of ways in which sometimes our unconscious biases leak into our behaviors. I tell a story in the book of a very senior executive, Rick Clow at Google Ventures, and how he, despite seeing himself as someone who was really advocating for women and underrepresented minorities on his team and in the workplace, was surprised at his results on an unconscious bias measure called the IAT, or Implicit Association Test. And he was a little like, that can't be right. And then he started looking a little more closely at the places where his influence and his role uh, really shows up, like who's in his contact list. He does a lot of matching funding with um, uh, business plans and opportunities. And so he noticed that 20, only 20% of his contacts were female. Uh, his social media feed, which is in a way he has a lot of influence in Silicon Valley, he noticed again only 20% female. And this surprised him. This was a noticing process that really allowed him to see ways in which he, he outside of his own awareness, was letting perhaps some unconscious biases slip into how he was doing his work. And his, he, he then had an action item. He was able to go expand his network to balance it out. That's a great anecdote, and I, I love that part of the book. Um, one of the points you make there is about having a growth mindset and how important it is for building and fighting bias. Um, could yeah. you talk a little bit about what you mean by growth mindset and how it relates to this topic? Absolutely. So um, Carol Dweck, psychologist at Stanford, uh, is the the person who's the originator of the term growth mindset as a uh, and it's a term that explains our beliefs about our abilities and whether those abilities can grow and change and expand or whether they're fixed, which would be a fixed mindset. So I could have a growth mindset about my uh, ability to learn a new sport, but might have a fixed mindset about my ability to learn how to draw. So it's domain-specific. What I was so fascinated by is the really robust research that Carol Dweck and many collaborators have done on mindset about thinking how it applies to these issues like bias and inclusion. What we know as social scientists from work you've done, Katie, work I've done, and work many others have done is the vast majority of our mental processing is happening outside of human awareness, our conscious awareness, which means we are slipping up and we're not seeing it sometimes. If that's happening, then the question is what happens when the slip up is made visible to us? Do we shut down or do we learn and grow? And that's where Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset becomes so useful. If in this domain we could have a mindset of ourselves as a work in progress, that means when we make a mistake, we may not feel great about it, but we'll look at it, we'll learn from it, we'll, we'll improve from it. In a fixed mindset, if we view ourselves as either we're good or we're not, either we're a sexist or we're not, either we're a racist or not, which is very often the way we corner ourselves in the conversations around these issues, there's nowhere to go when you make a mistake. Very few of us are willing to, to take on the label of not being a good person or being a racist or a sexist. And if that's the only alternative, we have a fixed mindset and we, we don't learn. We double down on defending ourselves. We go into the red zone. 
of um, protecting our identity. And so a growth mindset is how do we not go into the red zone? How do we, when the mistake happens, use it rather than ignore it? You mentioned a second ago, Dolly, this this recognition or, or lack thereof. What do you think is driving the lack of recognition of a lot of these issues? And I say that, you know, we're obviously in a much different time frame in terms of our culture and we're obviously more busy it seems like than ever before we're obviously most of us are tied to our smartphones almost (laughs) almost every day and i'm wondering if there are some factors here that are kind of leading to this this lack of recognition yeah i mean i i suspect none of those things help right so what we know is that all these these unconscious mental processes which do the lion's share of the mind's work under the best of circumstances that the more load we put on our minds the 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 harder it is to activate the kind of conscious um, awareness that we might want in those moments of of those challenging moments and so, yeah, I suspect, and I, I don't know if that's been studied yet or not, but the, I suspect we're making it all the harder on ourselves by putting more and more demands into an already pretty overloaded mind. There's, there's you know, one study that says that at any given moment, any given moment right now, 11 million pieces of information are coming into our minds, and only 40 of them are being processed consciously. So imagine 11 million is being dealt with in like low power mode of our brain and then 40s kind of on the screen being dealt with visibly if if you know a whole bunch of that 40s being used up by our smartphone we certainly are then even making it harder Hopefully a lot of those concepts will also resonate with any listeners who've read Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow I yes. think this is a, a very related book but on a different topic um, Yes Absolutely. And in fact, Katie, that's such a great connection because the the jargony term for a lot of this work that I do on the psychology of good people, as I refer to it, is bounded ethicality. And bounded ethicality is, is really just a riff off of bounded rationality, Herb Simon's term, which then would lead to Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky's work in Thinking Fast and Slow. So, Dolly, one of the things that I think makes the book so compelling is the way you weave narrative with the science uh, that that you've done and others have done on this topic. And, of course, I particularly loved one of those narratives. That was the Mm -hmm. one that you wrote in Chapter 8 about Max Bazerman, a professor Mm -hmm. at Harvard who was an important mentor to both of us in graduate school. And you use him as an example of what you call an inclusive builder. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the key characteristics of inclusive builders and why Max is such a great example of one. Yeah, that that chapter was such a joy to write, um, both because I knew it was a, a, a strong real-world example, but also because this was someone who, as you said, you and I have learned so much from. He's he's modeled for us what it what inclusion looks like. What I what I tried to highlight in there is a lot of what Max does to be inclusive isn't big. Uh, brain surgery type stuff. It's small things like not interrupting people. It's small things like being aware of people's different holidays and religion, religious commitments, and not questioning what's more or less serious. It's 
uh, not assuming when working with uh, a mother. So, so I had uh, I have two children, and and Max and I have collaborated on a number of things. And he doesn't assume just because in the past I've had to decline an opportunity or a business trip. Uh, because there was something going on with my kids and I wanted to be home for that. He doesn't assume because I said no once that I will always say no. He always brings the opportunity to the person and then lets them decide rather than deciding for them. Um, he was, he, he has always been completely appropriate in this era of Me Too. I think it's important to also highlight that there are men who understand boundaries and are following them in a very appropriate way. So these are not earth-shattering things, but when someone does them on such a daily and consistent way, they add up to inclusion with a capital I. And I think Max is an example of someone who has a track record of mentoring student after student has got, who's gone on to do wonderful things, and many of those students were women. And I think it's because of these, these very consistent actions he's taken over time. So on this topic of mentoring, and, uh, which comes up in the book and I think is very important to inclusion, some of our research together actually found its yeah. way into the book, which was really exciting. And you mentioned a study we collaborated on showing that professors are more receptive to mentoring meeting requests that come from white students than requests that come from minority students. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the takeaways from that study that you think are most important for people outside of the ivory tower. Yeah. And Katie, what's so exciting to be talking to you about that study right now is it occurs to me that you you uh, generated the idea for that study. And I think it, we were at Wharton when that conversation first took place, that I think this is a full circle <laughs> moment. It was probably like 10 or 15 years ago now. It's been a while. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's a study where um, Katie, I, and Madupe Akinola, our, our co-author, we were interested in looking at uh, how how do informal pathways affect important diversity outcomes? And so in our world of academia, people uh, often hear informally that one thing you can do is email professors before you apply to a Ph.D. program and indicate your interest in their research and ask if they'd be willing to talk to you about it. So it's not, there's no formal process around this. No one's measuring it typically. It just sort of happens sometimes. And when it does, it can lead to important uh, recognition on the faculty member's part that this person could be a good PhD student. So it can affect admissions outcomes down the road. So the study that we ran um, that Katie's describing was we did an audit study or uh, sometimes called a field experiment where we created fictional identities for students of different genders and races and had each of those fictional students send an identical email to professors, one randomly selected professor from every Ph.D. granting department in the United States, um, the U.S. News and World Report uh, college listing. And we were interested in whether or not we would get a response, which students would get a response. And our finding, uh, as, as, as Katie um, sort of so masterfully helped us craft our analyses for, showed that our white males were more likely to get a response from a professor from this cold call email than our non-white males. And 
to me, the way I think about that finding is that it illustrates how these informal pathways that are not captured in the big hiring numbers and the diversity numbers and the, the things that are legally, um, you know, important to, to follow in compliance, these moments are not captured, uh, but they do, we believe, have real influence on the numbers that are eventually captured. So it's a pathway to an important gateway, in this case, admissions into a PhD program. And it's in the context that a lot of people sort of assume that we've kind of figured it out in academia, that we're, you know, if anything, we're stereotyped to being overly attuned to this, these issues, and our data suggested otherwise. We're talking with uh, Dolly Chug, who is the author of the book, The Person You Mean to Be. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney in our studios and joined by Kitty Milkman of the Wharton School. Again, 844-942-7866 if you would like to join in with a comment on the phone or on uh, Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Dolly, do you think that, that people, when they find out that they may have a bias of some kind in some particular area. Are they fairly receptive to taking that information in and trying to be receptive of changing that pattern? Mm. Well, I don't think we're programmed to be receptive. I think we're programmed to be in that fixed mindset of like either I'm a good person or I'm not, either I'm a sexist or I'm not. And our national conversation, I think, often has that vibe to it as well, that either-or mindset. Right. I, you know, what I'm hoping to do in this book is offer people a ton of examples of people who've opted or somehow found themselves with a more of a growth mindset around it, and as a result of thinking themselves as goodish people. So goodish implies work in progress. So I'm not a good person who has nowhere to go when they make a mistake. Right. I'm a goodish person who has somewhere to go. And I think, do I, do I think that's where people naturally go? No. But I think when they go there, it's almost, you know, it's almost exhilarating, right? Anytime you learn something new and get better at it, it's a great feeling. I mean, there's there's highs and lows, of course, but it's interesting that in this area of diversity, inclusion, bias, equity, equality, we deny ourselves the opportunity to grow. We, we don't give ourselves the satisfaction of getting better, particularly in a debate domain we care deeply about and that impacts others in really significant ways. So I feel like there's an opportunity not just to do the things we want to do for the world around us, but to also help ourselves see ourselves as the people we mean to be. I, I was going to ask you, you know, getting people to kind of be at the level of goodish, the the impact that that could potentially have if you see more people kind of in that realm. What do you, what do you think ends up being the the net gain potentially down the road? Yeah, I think there's a multiplier effect, Dan. I, I think the more we see people uh, owning their mistakes, taking accountability, and then getting better, the more it liberates us to do it. It's that feeling of like, you know, once one person breaks the seal and makes something like <laughs> something we can talk about, right. uh, you know, then, then we're like, oh, you know, okay, that I can, you know, I, I, I'm, I see it all the time when I give talks on this topic that people are sort of stunned that I'll admit some of the like things that are, you know, fairly humiliating that I've done, my missteps, but then they start telling me their missteps, and I was like, okay, so now how do we move beyond confessional? This, that's not what this is about. This is about growing from it, and then we do. 
One last question then on this topic. Um, Dolly, what do you hope people will be able to do better after they read this book? Uh, I mean, on a really like specific level, I hope we're, we're able to have more constructive like Thanksgiving conversations. I'm hoping we are able to learn how to say our colleagues' names properly rather than avoiding names that we don't know how to pronounce or shortening them or nicknaming them. I'm hoping that we... Uh, learn how to apologize when we make a mistake. Um, These are some of the, like, really behavioral things. But on a higher level, I hope we take on a a different way of thinking about our role. And this isn't about solving the problems around us. That's part of it. But it's about starting with what we can do ourselves and and, and giving ourselves the gift of the opportunity to grow. It's setting a higher standard for ourselves, but also moving towards it. And what did you learn when writing the book that surprised you the most, Dolly? Mm. When I submitted my book proposal and, and, and was lucky enough to get a book contract, the word systemic was nowhere in my document. I, I went huh. back and checked that it, it didn't exist. I was all at the individual level trained as a social psychologist. So, you know, I really think about like what's going on in one individual's mind and maybe how a couple of individuals would interact with each other. Uh, Through the interviews I did for the book, it became clear I was really missing something, thinking about systems and processes and institutions. That's not my area of research expertise, but I learned so much by beginning to, to, to hear about what sociologists and economists and political scientists can tell us. Um, and historians. So I think some of the, the the things I share in the book on that topic were the ones that I learned the most in doing the work. Well, I learned so much from reading the book, Dolly, mm. even though I, I thought I knew a lot about this topic. <laughs> so thank you for, for sharing so much with me and others. Oh, that means the world, Katie. Thank you so much for saying that. Dolly, thanks for your time today and all the best with the book. Oh, Dan, this was such an honor. I really appreciate being here. Thanks again. Uh, Dolly Chug, the uh, book again is The Person You Mean to Be, uh, How Good People Fight Bias. The book is uh, out in bookstores, so uh, you can pick it up uh, now, or you can also uh, order it online as well. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 